This morning, I want to invite you then to Mark chapter 11. As you're making your way there, I want to give you a recap, and we'll read beginning in verse 27. Jesus has now stepped into, at least according to Mark, what is the most important part of his book. He spent the first 10 chapters flying through the first three years or more of Jesus' public ministry, but for the last chapters from chapter 11 all the way to chapter 16, he covers what may be around a week. And so he kind of went yada, yada, yada with kind of a, a breathtaking speed through the life and ministry of Jesus so that we'll see who he is as a Messiah, but then he slows down for the last third of the book so that we'll see in the last week of his life, in the last week of Jesus' life, that he is the Son of God. So he's come into Jerusalem, gone straight to the temple, begun to anger some of the authorities there, overthrowing the system that kept the nations out of the temple, opening up the gate, putting off every single hindrance and throwing off every single obstacle that keeps people from the presence of God in his temple, beginning in verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem. And he was walking in the temple... As he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven? Or from man? Answer me. Verse 31. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. He that is the master had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and, you do, not, and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. 
And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife. And when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Verse 28, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he that is God is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw, he answered wisely, He said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This passage begins with a challenge of people who are feeling insecure about their authority and influence, and Jesus responds and sets the tone for the rest of this passage by asking a simple question about John's baptism. Is it from heaven or is it from people? Is it God's or is it an invention of human beings? Posing a question that sets the stage for the rest of this chapter, maybe in some sense for the rest of the entire Bible, what are the things of God? Really, what, what are the things of God? And that begs so many other questions. Who is God? Is God real? And if God is real, and if God is a thing, if He is an entity, then can I trust Him? Can I seek Him? Can I know Him? And if I can, then what is His will? What is His plan? What then are the things of God? What is God doing? And what is it that we are doing? And what, if any, is the connection between the two? What are the things of of God. Because Jesus walks in and and messes with the things that these people would have believed were of God, namely the temple, the most important place. For Mark, this is kind of like working Jesus' way through the brackets, working his way up the rungs of the ladder until he's at the pinnacle of religious life for these people, the temple of Jerusalem, the temple where people came, traveled from great distance to pray to God, to seek God, and to have an atoning sacrifice made on their behalf so that they would have intercession and have communion with God and restore once again in the temple a new garden that they'd been alienated from from the first sinners, Adam and Eve. And they came for great places to to be a part of this sacrifice and to engage in this tradition. And Jesus walks right into the most important place, the center of religious life for these people, walks right up to the central authority figures of these people and just begins to mess with them. And the customs that have existed for years and years, Jesus walks in and completely disrupts. He walks into this temple, overthrows the greatest, probably the the most popular and well-attended day at the temple. He throws over the money changers, the people selling animals to be sacrificed. 
throwing over all the obstacles for these people on the outside to get inside to the temple. Utterly throwing upside down what the temple existed for and then throwing upside down the leaders and the authorities who thought they had power. And so they come to Jesus with a great deal of anger. Last week we saw that they were so angry, they were so upset that they were seeking out ways to destroy him according to verse 18 such that they came to challenge him in verse 27 and ask a question about Jesus' authority, hinting at this. What, what are you doing? You're messing up what we believe are the things of God. The things we worship, the things we know to be true about God, you're really messing with. And so our answer when we ask, what are the things of God, is very simple. All of our answers, all of them, All of our answers, everything we respond to concerning who God is and what God is doing are visible when God became present as the man Jesus. So that no more would anyone have to wonder, what is God like? God became visible, active, and living among us. And so that no one else would ever wonder, can we relate to God? He became as relatable as possible, taking the very form of man, emptying all of his divinity, emptying all of his power into the frail and mortal figure of Jesus. Hear this good news, friends, that that when we ask, is there a God, we get a definitive promise and answer in Jesus. Yes, and this is what he looks like. Is God fearful? Should we run from God? Should we avoid God? How do we relate to God? And Jesus answers, you come to me. Trust me and I will not turn you away. And even if you're running from me, I will seek you out. So they ask a question about Jesus' authority. Then what is God like? And Jesus responds with a different kind of question so that they would begin to open their minds as to who God is and what God is doing. Namely saying, was the baptism of John... John the Baptist, who has just been beheaded a few chapters before this, was it from God? Was it from heaven? Was it a divine thing? Or was it a man-made tradition such that we should overthrow it? Now, I don't want you to miss this. When we begin to see that Jesus gives us everything we need to know about who God is and what he is like, we begin to see some powerful things. In this particular set of circumstances, we see baptism is one of the things that is of God. We see a picture of God working like right out of the Isaiah chapter 5, that God is sending His Son to people who He knows will reject Him. But the things of God also have implications for things like government, kingdoms of this world, and money, in addition to resurrection, marriage, and the way that we treat others. So let's just begin running through this list, starting with the the question that starts this and sets this conversation up for Jesus to tell a powerful, pale, a, a, a powerful parable. He says, tell me then about the baptism of John. Now here's what I can argue for you. This question is still up for debate. This question that Jesus asks is still up for debate. This is still a discussion. What is the baptism of John then? So if you want to ask if is, is Jesus right here? Let's just find out what the baptism of John is. If you want to, you can follow me to Matthew chapter 3. We read it at the beginning of, of the Gospel of Mark, but each Gospel tells this story in a different way. And this is what we find out. In those days, Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said that the voice of one crying in the wilderness will cry out, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So right then and there, we see what is, we ask this question, so what, what is the baptism of John? And when Jesus asks, is that legitimate thing? Is that a thing of God or is it a thing of man? Let's just, what is the baptism of John? And I think you'll see this as a question that still happens today. The baptism of John, quite literally, is as he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is a baptism of repentance. And people, it says, were going out to him to the Jordan, all the region about the Jordan, they were going out to him in verse 6, and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So it's a baptism of confession of sin and repentance from sin to believe in this new kingdom that God is bringing for us in Jesus. But when many of the Pharisees, verse 7 of Matthew chapter 3, and the Sadducees, these are prominent characters that show up in Mark chapter 12, they come out. This question is not foreign to them. They would have already addressed this. That's why Jesus digs at him when he does. 
When the Pharisees and the Sadducees come out to see John's baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit. This is a theme we've seen for the last couple of chapters, the fig tree. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these very stones to raise up children for Abraham. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, repent. Be baptized because you turn away from your wicked ways to the way of humility before God. For God, we know, opposes those who are proud, but He draws near to the humble. Therefore, repent of your pride, repent of your ways, and seek the ways of God. And keep bearing fruit in line with a humble mode of repentance. And he blatantly says, this is what this is about. You can't call upon your father Abraham. You can't just say, well, I don't need to repent because I was born in this lineage. This is what's passed on from my parents. I don't need need to repent and confess my sins and believe and see this new kingdom because I've inherited something from my father Abraham. Can I tell you something? Christians today are still having this argument. And I want you to see why the life of our church, we are Here's, here's, a, here's a scary word some of you, like I hate Baptists, and then, haha, joke's on you, you're, you're kind of in a Baptistic church. All right, here we go. So like, we are Baptistic in principle because of this. Because Jesus blatantly asks the question, is baptism of John of God or is it of man? Is it a divine ordinance or is it a man-made tradition? And the baptism of John quite blatantly is repent, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't pull the card that you have inherited the faith of your parents. For these people, Abraham. Repent, believe, confess Jesus as Lord yourself. So for example, many Christians believe in a covenantal view of paedo-baptism, namely baptism of children. We love them. We, We love them. If they love the gospel, we love them. But here's the problem. They have answered the question like these Pharisees, I believe. And in asking the question, is John's repentance legitimate? Is it something that ought to keep coming? You know what they say? Well, it's the faith of the parent, the faith of the covenant community. And this child is baptized into the marks of faith, the symbols of the faith of their community and their parents. And I don't want you to miss the the diametrically opposed words of John that say, you are not allowed to say, my faith is in my father's. You must bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So here's what I'll say to you. Like we, we won't baptize children um, because it's really hard to make them repent. Like you take a baby. I mean, I've tried. It's just really difficult to make them repent. Like I, I was like, confess your sin. Stop it. And, and they, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And the other part of it is that this baptism, I, yeah, I, didn't, I didn't shake a bit. That's awful. That's <laughs> worse. No. No. Repent. No. No. Who is this guy? Right? So, (laughs) repent. (laughs) Repent, little child. And the baby doesn't do it. And the second thing we see that the baptism of John teaches us that they go to the river, dunk people in a baptism of water. The second thing we find out is that it's, I'm just going to put this out there, it's really difficult and you really should not put little babies underwater. Even CPS disagrees with this. And so, both the means of baptism, namely dunking underwater, is not recommended for children, okay? And, and also confession of sin and repentance of sin and believing that Jesus is Lord is really difficult for babies to do. And so here's what we, I'm, I, again, if you have been baptized and as a baby, we love you, we're not stomping on you in any way, here's what I would tell you, the same thing, John. You, if you were baptized as a baby in this morning, or in this, you're in there here in this morning and you were baptized as a baby, my words to you are just like John's, repent, believe the good news of Jesus, and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And I would compel you, if, if, if you want to do this, if, if this is something you're called to do, I think I can make a very clear case. Stop putting your faith in the symbols of your parents' faith. Put your faith into the symbols of your own repentance, that God has called you to himself in Jesus. Again, you'll say, well, is that really here? Yeah, that's absolutely here. And Jesus challenges the people, these people on this. And if that isn't enough, 
Um, you can run to the book of Acts where, where the Apostle Paul is speaking and he himself begins sharing about the baptism of John. Acts 19, verse 4, if you want to write it down. The baptism of John comes up and the baptism of the Spirit is coming up in chapter 19, verse 4. And Paul says, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the One who was to come after Him, that is Jesus. Almost identical as verse 11 in Matthew chapter 3. If you're wondering why, John, are you baptizing people, verse 11 of Matthew chapter 3 says simply, I baptize you with water for repentance. So there we go. Baptism is a symbol of being buried and your old life being put to death and coming out new. Coming out with a new sense of purpose, a new identity, a new life, a new name in Jesus Christ. And in the same way, this is the miraculous thing, in the same way that no one's afraid of being drowned by the pastor in water, neither are we afraid of being stuck in the grave six feet under. And in the same way that we come out dripping wet out of this water, not drowned, but alive and clean, so also one day Jesus will call us out from six feet under, alive and clean with a new life. This is it. This is repent, believe this, turn away from anything else. Thank you. That, go thank your parents. Thank you for passing on the symbols of repentance and the symbols of the gospel and baptism. But also say, thank you for your symbols, but let me tell you, I want to keep my own fruit and bear fruit of repentance. I don't want to be the fig tree that is cursed. I want to be the fruitful tree that has fruit of repentance. Knowing all this, knowing all this, what do the Pharisees say? The chief priests and scribes and the elders were speaking and they have this conversation. It says in verse 31, they discussed it with one another saying, if we say it's from God, if we say that the baptism is from God, then he's going to ask us, then why did you not believe in him? If we say God did this and he's going to immediately ask, well, why didn't you do it? But if we say it's human, well, then all these people are going to be angry because they really believe John was a prophet. And so they respond and answer to Jesus in verse 33, we do not know. And by their non-answer, they have given an answer. Postmodernism is nothing new. Uh, the idea that there are no answers but only questions is nothing new. It's throughout the entirety of the New Testament. And when you come up with a non-answer, you are in effect giving an answer. When you say, well, it can't be known, you are giving Jesus an answer. And when you give a non-answer, Jesus says very clearly in verse 33, you will not understand my authority. Your non-answer is an answer. Answering one question with 50 questions is a non-answer. It didn't work for these people. They didn't see Jesus as he really was, and it didn't work for Pontius Pilate. It's nothing new. And Jesus tells this story so that we would begin to understand his authority. Did you catch why they didn't speak out boldly? It says they were afraid of the people. They were afraid. They would rather keep their position and live a lie than to submit to Christ and walk in truth. Don't miss this. This is for believers and non-believers alike. They would rather keep their position, not admit that they were wrong in any way to the people or to Jesus, and live a lie and throw out a non-answer than to submit to Christ. And they had false motives and a closed mind. And they had cowardice instead of courage. And you know what it did? It alienated them from Jesus. And what we find is that when people refuse to trust Jesus, it's typically not because Jesus is not worthy, but it's because they're terrified of what people might say. And they care more, according to Proverbs 29, 25, about the fear of man which brings a snare. And they care little about trusting in the Lord and being exalted. Verse 32 lays bare the core of the religious authorities being. And I think maybe the core of our own being they were afraid of what people might think so as jesus opens this up he sticks it to him with a parable it says that he tells a story about a man who planted a vineyard a man who planted a vineyard and he and he did some special things to it and if you want to you can join me in isaiah chapter 5 but i'll i'll kind of skim through it so you can you can hear that 
Jesus was not just making up a parable like he sometimes does. He was telling a story that comes right out of the book of Isaiah. As Mark's favorite thing to do is to, to quote Isaiah. Verse 1 of chapter 5, Let me sing a song for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. This is a prophecy to God's people. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and he cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower. Did you hear that? He built a watchtower just like the one in Jesus' parable. And in the midst of it, he hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes. It it yielded wild grapes. And now, inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard for more, excuse me, what more is there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? And when I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now, now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that there rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, there was bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Jesus is calling back to Isaiah's parable of God creating a vineyard that is all of creation. And God gives us very good gifts. God gives us amazing gifts. And just like Isaiah, we see that God puts us in a place that is beautiful. God entrusts to our care beautiful things. But this parable demonstrates for us the fulfillment of this prophecy that we find out that to reject the Son The son of the master is to, in fact, to reject the master, the father himself. God entrusts us with these things. He gives us oversight over these things. And it's meant to be a parable that paints a picture of the entirety of the Old Testament. That God has entrusted care over the world to his people. And instead of bringing about righteousness, it says they brought about bloodshed. Which is basically the story of every single person in the Old Testament. And yet God didn't end the story. Right? If, if I was telling this story and I'm God and this is a parable about me and what I built, it would have been I built this vineyard and these people, when I sent a messenger to them to share in the profits of this, of this good work, if they, if they beat the messenger, that's the end of the parable for me, is it not? Is that what you would do? And that was the end of the parable. Master came and killed everybody, fired everybody, removed everybody. But God in his mercy gives more than one chance. It says he sends more representing the prophets that were rejected, even Jesus as he resonates with them, rejected even especially in their hometown. They were beaten. Some, verse 5 says, were killed. And over and over and over again, God sends a messenger and people reject him until finally God engages in the most radical act of mercy imaginable. He sends his own son. Let that rest on you for just a moment. God knowing that we would reject his word, knowing that we would reject the people that he's put in our lives to speak words of truth, words of repentance, and words of good news, of faith, and his mercy and his grace, knowing that we would reject it, he sent yet another, his own son. Just think on that for a moment. If you send some of your friends into a bad circumstance, it seems like, just if you're talking to me, That when your friends, as you send into a system, get beaten and killed, you start sending your worst friends, right? Like like your friend list, like you're my best friend, my BFF. Like that list starts to become important because when they start beating them up, you're like, well, they're probably going to kill the next one. I'm probably going to send my fourth best friend this next one. They beat them. I'm probably going to send my fifth best friend. I mean, I love you, but like at that point, it's like, I mean, if they're going to kill and beat the things that I send to them, I'm just not going to send my favorite. That's how I think. Maybe not you. I certainly wouldn't go, you know what, that's a dangerous, terrible circumstance. You know what I ought to do? I ought to send my precious, my precious little innocent daughter into the mix. That's what I'm going to do. Oh, you go down to this neighborhood and, and they kill you and they, and they beat you and they cast you out? You know what I should do? I should send them my adorable little daughter. I don't think that way, and yet I think we get a glimpse into the good news of God's mercy. Knowing full well that we would reject and we would throw off his good word he sends his son god so loved the world the bible tells us that he sent his son 
that if you would receive Him and not reject Him, then eternal blessing comes from knowing Him. Friend, I say this often. I love you, but if you're in traffic and my daughter's in traffic, it was nice knowing you. And it's not because I don't love you. I do love you. I want you to know that. From the depths of my soul, I believe God's put you in my life for a reason. I love you. And it's not that I don't let, love you that I'll let you die. It's just that I love her more. I love her more. And you're, d- you're done. I can't help you. I'm saving her. Oh, how radical is the grace and love of God that as he looked upon our helpless estate and as traffic was coming to destroy us, he interposed his own precious blood for us. And when he had the choice of saving you or saving his son, letting you die or letting his perfect, spotless, blameless son die, he did something crazy insane. He saved you instead and let his son take the fall. You get the radical nature of God's love for us. And the hardness of heart that it takes to reject it. Verse 12, it says they got angry. They got, they got it. They understood. He quotes Psalm 118 that I opened with. Did you catch that? Jesus says, listen, a prophecy from 118, from the Psalm 118 tells us that you can reject the sun. You can reject this stone. The builders did such a thing, but man, God's going to do something amazing. We'll cry out, Hoshana, Hosanna, save us, O Lord. And this is what will happen. He will save us by taking the stone that was rejected and making it the cornerstone. It is the Lord's doing, not yours. It is his doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So they wanted to arrest him because they knew that that parable was directed squarely to them. So the next group of people come up to him, the Pharisees. They come up and they bring with some of them the Herodians and they come to challenge Jesus. So what we've seen here is that when we ask, what are the things of God? We we realize that Jesus begins to unfold a picture for us. The things of God are repentance and believing and faith that he is a good and merciful God. And we see this personified in his own life and character because he doesn't just tell a story about a master who sent a son who died. He walks into the story and becomes it. He personifies it. He embodies it. He is incarnational in the way that he tells the story. He incarnates the love of God in this story. And so now there are implications. First one has to do with government. And we come to find out that when people uh, come to Jesus, they want to challenge him. And they say, look, in the same way that, you know, maybe we're angry with you in this one thing, we want, we want to challenge you with another one. And, and we see that they come to him and they, they ask him a question. Should we pay taxes? They set a trap for him. They set a trap for Jesus, hoping that Jesus will either incriminate himself amongst Caesar's guard that might have been there, or they'll entrap him. Either way, Jesus will go down. And the truth is that we trust in a sovereign hand of God such that we are citizens of his kingdom first and citizens of the world second. They ask, what do you what, what do you do with this? With this money that we meet, this money that we earn, do we give it to Caesar? And it's a pretty profound question. I mean, we should ask that question. Should we pay taxes? What if we don't recognize their legitimacy? What if we disdain the government's policies? What if we hate the people who collect taxes? What if we're subjected to oppression by that people? Should we feed the monster that's eating us? No, we trust in the sovereign hand of God. Jeremiah 24 to 28, leading up to our favorite coffee table verse, I know that I have plans for you, plans to prosper you. And you see now when it's on a coffee table or on a coffee cup, you see now when you kind of cross-stitch it and hang it on a wall. The context of that prosperity that God promises is that they're going to live in exile. They're going to live in the midst of exile. And they're not to overthrow the Babylonians that have them held captive, but instead they are to bless them, serve them, and be fruitful among them. And in spite of their oppression, in spite of the wrath of God being poured out on them for their disobedience through the hand of the pagan and evil hands of the Babylonians, they are called to be faithful to God and bless the place in which they live. Why? Because they trust that the sovereign hand of God first makes us kingdom residents, makes us citizens of His kingdom that is coming in Jesus Christ. And then secondly, makes us residents of this world and citizens of this world. And if one harms the other, we always lean on God's sovereignty. Just briefly, please, in this election cycle, please, 
give to the U.S. government what it deserves, but give to our sovereign God what he deserves. And if your trust and hope is in our sovereign God, then we get to relax and exhale about the rest, don't we? Like, like isn't, it, I'm just, just, isn't it good to know Caesar's name may be on the currency, but God's name is written on our hearts for eternity. Like, just let that pound into you and let that just wash over like refreshing, peaceful waters such that whether it's Bernie, Hillary, Trump, Cruz, you name it, we are not outside of God's sovereignty and we are not outside of his control. Oh, we may go somewhere crazy. Don't hear me wrong. Let's vote for the least crazy guy. But let's not put our hope in him or her. Let's not put our trust and let's not put our hopes and dreams in that person. I mean, they'll fail every single time and it'll be within the next four or eight years you'll wish you hadn't. Friend, take great courage. We are in the hands of a sovereign God such that we live allied with his purposes and his kingdom. And we are obedient to his kingdom to the extent that we actually trust that the authority he's put over us are meant to be obeyed too. So don't be lawless anarchists, right? Drive the speed limit. Pay your taxes. When the world sees that you submit to authority, they will be listening closely for the moment when you rebel. A time of civil disobedience may be coming for those of us who radically follow Jesus. But let's not live anarchists. Let's not live like rebellious heathens up to that point. So that when the time comes for us to say, I will do what God says and not what you say. And when the time may come for you or our children to be thrown in jail because we choose to do what God says versus what the government says, it will be a loud and boisterous cry. Because they will know, wow, these these Christians have obeyed these laws for so long. What must be taking place for them to all of a sudden rebel against? These Christians have been nothing but submissive and humble and faithful servants to this government that we've been given. What makes them so radically opposed to it now? It will loudly be a testimony of our loyalty to God and they will wonder what's going on. If you are living an anarchist, lawless life now, they will not care about how you think about the laws when you start to break them because you've been doing it the whole time. So friend, be loyal to God's kingdom coming to this earth through Jesus Christ. And in doing so, serve like Jesus. Because his kingdom isn't just to overthrow the Babylonians, the Greeks, or the Romans. His kingdom is to overthrow death, hell, and sin. And that, friend, that kingdom never goes away. It seems like he answered the question well. But they come and challenge him again about marriage and about heaven. And we see again that those who are in Christ, are promised a future resurrection and fullness of life in the presence of King Jesus. Why is this important? Because just like the baptism argument, just like the government argument, we have another argument that's being made here. Over the last couple of decades, there's a genre of book that, uh, that it's become to be known as heaven tourism books. Have you heard about these? Like children or people going into heaven, having experience of heaven, coming back, um, and, then, and then writing about it and selling lots of copies. Because we're hungry for that, aren't we? We want answers about what happens after we die. Um, my favorite one, you can look it up. The, there was a boy, and last name was Malarkey. It doesn't get any more apropos than that. The boy's last name was Malarkey. He wrote a book about his experience in heaven, came back, and then said, oh, by the way, I lied about it. I had to recant it. It was Malarkey, right? I mean, it doesn't get any better than that, right? It's a, it's, it's a, it teed it up for me. I got I to gotta take that one. So, so this is a, a kind of a genre of, 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 of literature that's come out and been quite popular over the last couple of decades, and we see Jesus having to address the same thing. Right? Speculation about what happens after we die. Speculation about what's going to happen when we breathe our last breath. Speculation, and this with respect to marriage. Now this was a trap because the Sadducees, who don't believe in the resurrection, asked him a question about resurrection. Kind of a hypothetical question. And Jesus, instead of answering in a way that's, I don't know, plays into his hand, he outsmarts them again and shows that God is ultimately the God of resurrection. And the resurrection that we will experience will be the unbridled and unmitigated presence of Jesus forever and ever. So, here's what I think this calls us to do. We reject any speculation about heaven that isn't ultimately about the glory of Jesus. Okay? 
Because most of the pictures of heaven are actually some glorified version of our own idols. Ever heard this? Uh, there was a hymn that happened uh, several decades ago, I've Got a Mansion Over the Hilltop. Uh, and, and Christians would sing it. It doesn't mention God, Jesus, or anything. It just is like, I got a, hand, I got a mansion over the hilltop. It was sort of about heaven, but it could have been about like Boca Raton or Beverly Hills. And this is the scary thing about what most people believe about the afterlife. They project their own idols onto the thing that they think Jesus will give them. Friend, if your only love for heaven is that there's a mansion, streets of gold, and some sort of a, a beautiful sea, then you don't need to go to heaven. You just need like a family reunion with all your friends and, and, and to win the lottery. What you need to enjoy eternity is the presence of Jesus. And the best thing about heaven isn't the stuff we get to enjoy. It's the guy we get to spend eternity with. Look, I travel sometimes, and when I get homesick, I miss my bed. I don't sleep well without my frou-frou pillowcase that my wife has trained me to use. I don't sleep well without my pillow top mattress. I I mean, I used to be like a tough guy and sleep on the floor. I don't care. I'll roll up a shirt and sleep. That used to be me. Not anymore. And so when I leave, I really miss my bed. I really miss my couch. I really miss my pillow. And I'm just uncomfortable the whole time. But when I take that turn after that travel is over and I start to look back toward home, I don't get excited about my bed. I don't get excited about my pillow. That's really great. It's really comfortable. You know what I get excited about? The people who live in my house. That's what I get excited about. And I'm, my heart is warm because if you threw the bed out, but, th- but there's, there's my family whom I love dearly. That's what makes that home actually worth spending time in. So friend, don't fall for this false belief about heaven that is some sort of an exponentially altered view of our own idolatry. And if you don't believe that this is relevant, ask the suicide bombers why they do what they do. They have nothing less than a pornographic view of an afterlife. And they have exalted their own lusts and projected upon what happens after they die. Friend, this is relevant. We speak a testimony about the afterlife. And it's really great. And not because of some pornographic gift that's given to us by some flippant God. And not because of some treasures that we get to, get to, to, to like play with for the rest of our life. But it's about the loving Father of the universe who wraps us in His arms and spins forever with us. Reject anything else. Reject it all because the glory of heaven will be the presence of Jesus that will be so bright, Revelation tells us, that we won't even need a sun. The sun will cease to be visible because the brightness of the glory of Jesus and his presence will be unmitigated and unrivaled. This is what we have. This is the promise to which we cling. Lastly, they try to trap Jesus with the command. So they've, they've already pushed on him a picture of, of his authority, and they've already pushed on him what it means to really be citizens of this earth. They've, they've pushed on him what it means to be really married and to, to think about heaven and the resurrection. And lastly, they push on him the commandments. And a scribe, who doesn't really come to challenge him, but maybe to learn from him, says, what is the commandment? What is the greatest of this? Of the laws that God gives us, which is the greatest? And Jesus does something amazing. Because it's almost like he's asking Jesus, and this is, catch me, this, this could be ugly here. It'd be like if I went up to my wife and I was like, I know you told me to do five things today, but like, really, what's the one thing I have to do? Like, like seriously, I know I'm supposed to, yeah, I know the, the dishes, this, 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 but like, but like really, what, like what's the least I have to do to be, to be still friends with you here? Do you get the motive of the heart that comes out of this? He's like, hey, Jesus, what are the commandments? What's the best one? As if to kind of imply, what are the ones I really don't have to pay attention to? And Jesus does something amazing. He takes what I believe are the Ten Commandments and he flips them toward the positive. You see, for us in Exodus chapter 20, God, knowing our sinful and rebellious hearts, put his commands in the form of the negative. Knowing that we couldn't just get the positive. The first four are about him, right? No other gods, no graven images. Keep his name holy and sacred and remember his day, the restful day in which we walk in his presence and keep it holy sacred. The first four in the positive are love the Lord your God. Because if you love the Lord your God more than anything else, you won't have any other gods or idols. You won't try to settle for some graven image to have his presence. You'll know that he is good. You won't mar or mimic or mock his name and take it in vain and and you certainly absolutely wouldn't mess up the time that you get to spend with him 
But in our brokenness, the first four commandments are that you should not do these things. And Jesus says, if you really want to get the first four commandments down, just love the Lord your God with all of yourself. And things like Sabbath, words of your mouth, time you spend, the idols that you undermine will come naturally. And then there's the last six about murder, about stealing, about coveting, about honoring father and mother, right? And, and basically, if you get this right, if you really love your neighbor, think about this. If you, if you love God, you'll do these things and you won't break these commandments. And if you love your neighbor, then it's really not that hard to not murder them. Have you ever noticed that? Like, have you ever noticed when you love your neighbor like yourself, you, have this, you, you tend to not steal, steal their stuff. When you love your father and your mother, you have the funny way of honoring them. When you love your neighbor, you, you, you don't covet and want to steal the things they have. And Jesus summarizes for us that his picture of a new kingdom that this man is not far from is not only about the things that you shouldn't do, but we find out that God's will and God's law can be summarized by loving him and loving his people. Friend, this is what we've been called to do. So let me wrap on this. Before we go and eat some pizza together, let me just shout out of how this is happening. In the last couple of years, these practical and fruitful things that are marks of God's sovereignty through Jesus Christ have happened in this room. Start with baptism. There are some of you in this room that I got to bury in the water and you didn't stay there. And now you're walking in newness of life. That's happened. And as a result of Jesus' rule and reign and his authority unmitigated for us, now we get to see new lives. And here's the fun part. There's some of you right in this room, you need to be baptized. You need to make it public that you are now dead to your sin and you are alive in Christ. And you know who you are and I don't have to bully you into this because right now the Spirit's been messing with you and the Holy Spirit's been like, like making you uncomfortable and every time you pull that connection card and it says, I'm thinking about baptism, you're like, ah! And you want to crumple it up and throw it away. And here, here's the thing, this is, this is going to keep happening because the marks of God's kingdom coming on earth are repentance and the fruit of that repentance show up as we celebrate it in the baptism. It's happening. This isn't just about a story 2,000 years ago. This, this is happening. This is really taking place. And the second thing we see that because Jesus has taken our place and he has been sent to us, then now all of a sudden we, we see our loyalty to the world differently. And we render to God what is God's and we render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Can I tell you this is also happening? Did you know in the second year of our existence, this little small group of people gave away over $17,000 to planting churches and sending missionaries on this continent and the continents to the ends of the earth. This little group of people $17,000. That's a big deal. Because right now, some of you are terrified that at the very end of this, we're going to pass a basket, right? You're like, oh, this is, this is the awful part. I got to give. And, 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 and I, again, I don't want, you don't need to feel bullied in that at all. You just need to know that God is doing something. And for some of you, I've seen, I, I, know, I know the pain of, of letting go of what you think is yours, but I'm telling you there's a blessing that comes when the sovereignty of Jesus starts to take over our loyalties. He starts doing crazy things. And we're not hopefully one day planting a church like we have been sending money to a church that is now off the ground and running in Sturgis, South Dakota. You do, you're doing that. Not like we one day will do No, no. You are giving to God what is God's. And lost people will hear the gospel in Sturgis. And I don't know if you know anything about Sturgis. There's a few people who need to hear the name of Jesus. Right? You're doing that. This is happening. This is actually taking place. There's a picture of marriage. That's taking some of you. When I first met you a year or two ago, your marriage was in hell and it was on the way out. And now we're standing here, and by God's grace, some of you right now get to celebrate differently what the future looks like. It matters. The sovereignty of Jesus really matters. He saves people, He saves marriages. But more than anything, and this is the beautiful thing, you and I are now a people that are residents of a kingdom that is coming in Jesus Christ. And we, having submitted ourselves to His grace, have a promise of eternity that is more beautiful than we could ever imagine. Now let us continue to be the people who know that our treasure is not here on this earth, but our treasure is in the presence of a loving God who sent His Son, knowing that we would reject Him, and yet He sent Him to save us such that the treasures that we will enjoy in the presence of a loving and holy God, we begin to celebrate and sing about now, and we will continue to celebrate and sing about forever and ever. 
thank God, this isn't just a story that Jesus tells us that we ought to do. This is a story that's coming to pass right here. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are king and sovereign. You are good. You are faithful to us even when we are unfaithful to you. And even as we reject your son, you, you send him freely anyway. And even though just like the master of the vineyard ought to come and destroy those who have opposed Jesus' rule and reign, you are not coming to destroy us, but you are coming to redeem us and to restore us. We know this because there is fruit of this. In our very midst, there is a new and radical loyalty to your kingdom, such that even the things that normally would give us a sense of meaning and purpose, the dollars that are in our pockets, we, we're starting to love them less and love you more. We're starting to hold on to them more loosely and holding tightly to your kingship even more. Continue to do this. God, we know that you are restoring that which is broken. And in a story of the, the, the Pharisees shared here that about brokenness and marriage and death and you, you come and you give a promise of eternal life that, that eventually there will be a life that is so great that it will cast a, a shadow over all that is gone and we won't even remember it. And the present sufferings, the present brokenness that we now experience, it's not even worth comparing the, to the glory that you'll reveal to us when you return. God, you're bringing us to new life. This is happening. We, we don't talk about this as some abstract thing, but we pray that you would continue to make this real in the hearts and the lives of the people of this church, that we would be a people that are radically loyal to a new kingdom. We are radically opposed to everything that will undermine our one true love for the God of the universe. We are radically following you into a new kingdom where you are sovereign and where all that is broken is being made new. Thank you for the fruit of that. Thank you for the evidence of that and the things that are being made new around us. In Jesus' name, amen.